You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast that explores the intersection of faith and culture. Hey, we're back with episode 101, Adam Hawkins. We haven't done 101 of these, but can you believe we're at episode 101? This is pretty crazy. I can. You can believe it. Mm-hmm. It's been a lot of time. <laughs> Such a drain on your life. <laughs> well, today, like we've done many, many times, we're going to do a cultural roundup. I want to talk about some of the things that are going on in culture around us and maybe some of the ways that we can offer some ideas, opinions of how cultural, uh, how Christians can navigate this in culture. And there's a ton going on. In fact, we had a hard time narrowing it down to a few topics today. Yeah. We got a lot before us. One of the reasons I like that we do a cultural roundup is not because we're the experts on it all, but it's it's actually just sort of mo- modeling an interaction with the culture around us. And my hope in us doing this episode is that as you listen, you'd think deeply about what's happening and you'd sort of talk with friends and, and spouses and kids and all that kind of stuff about just man, what is happening? How did we get here? And, and really engage a little bit. Uh, and then to think intentionally about what the Christian response to these things might be. So I, I would say, don't hear us as experts, hear us Good. about working these things out, you know, uh, and, and maybe just modeling an example of how we can work these things out. So I think the first place I want to start is just over summer, over the last year, over the last five years, what's becoming ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's always in the news is the idea of mass shootings, but in particular school shootings. Mm. Uh, you're hearing a lot even in the debates that we're having right now and in, in, um, the political debates we're having right now about what to do and what fixes these things. Uh, and then most recently, um, as in the last few days of us recording this, there's been a PSA that came out for the Sandy Hook uh, school survivors that is a really powerful and emotional um, uh, uh, ad yeah, advertisement. So for somebody who hasn't seen that, uh, you and I both watched it. Yep. There's a, it's a PSA, which is a public service announcement. It's supposed to teach the public something, yep. and it's regarding school shootings, and it's created, at least in part, by the parents and those invo- those around Sandy Hook, which of course was a terrible school shooting where a man with mental illness, a young man with mental illness, went into, I believe it was a kindergarten and preschool yep. and and killed kids. But if yep. for those who haven't seen... And then the- wasn't there a guy in Alex Jones or whatever in that... Was this the one where he said all the parents were faking? Do you remember? Yeah, there's there was yeah there was unfortunately some men uh, and women. I'm sorry, some people who said that it was made up, that it was falsified, that's right. and that's a whole other story. And sure. it's just a, a terrible thing to do to a parent who's grieving the loss of their child. Can't believe it. But Adam, for those who haven't seen the PSA, walk us through a little bit. Like what what happens in that PSA? How do they set it up? So it opens up, and it, it actually reminds. It, if you, it reminds you of something you'd see like a Target ad for kids going back to school. Right. That's how it feels. Like, it's like, I'm going back to school and I got this new binder and I got these new, uh, you know, whatever, shoes. pencils or yeah. whatever. And as it starts going on, all of a sudden a school shooting starts to happen in the background. And yet the kids continue to talk about their the products, you know. Yeah. I got my new skateboard and breaking a window and I, these socks really help stop the, you know, help help as a tourniquet and these kind of things. Yes. And it just gets darker and darker and really sad till the final scene is a girl hiding in a bathroom, crying, saying, I love my new phone. I'm able to 
keep in touch with my mom. And it's a text that says, I love you, mom. And then the shooter, you hear the shooter walk into the bathroom and the screen goes black. So it's just very powerful. Yeah, it is very powerful. It's very emotional. And you do see the reality of the age of these kids. It's difficult to watch. It kind of it reminded me of the music video from Pumped Up Kicks. I don't know if you've ever seen that. But in the music video for the song Pumped Up Kicks, which is a song about school shootings, it's similar. There's a school shooter in the background. You just kind of witness the fear on somebody's face. And so I'm, I'm a pastor now, but I actually spent a couple of years as a public school teacher and we had these drills where we went through uh, regarding school shootings. But uh, I've also, I've never been uh, in a school during a school shooting, but I actually, Adam, I don't think I've ever told you this, but there was a day I, wa- I was inside a high school when they were on lockdown for a shooter. It was, it was terrifying, actually. I walked into the front door of school, wow. I was a pastor at the time, and I was walking down the hallway, and the hallways were completely empty and, and blank and, and just completely devoid of life. And I saw the principal far down, he's got to be 100 yards away, and he's waving his arms at me. And he's saying, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And he's a friend. I wasn't a stranger to him. And I said, man, he said, how did you get in here? I said, I just walked in the front door. He said, get in my office. And I tried to open the office door, but it was locked. And then he came and unlocked it for me, let me in. And inside, there's all these people that were terrified because they heard me jiggling the handle, trying to get in the office. They thought maybe I was somebody honestly coming to get them. And just the look of fear on people's faces, knowing that they were in an active shooter situation, it was terrifying. And that's, that's, it wasn't a drill. It was, but there wasn't actually a shooter, and uh, but it was a kind of a scary moment. But it's terrifying to imagine these things. And to me, one of the cultural questions that Americans we have to address is why in our culture this is prevalent in a way that you do not see it in other cultures. Mm-hmm. Is there something different about mental health? Is it something different about the way we think about life? Is it something different about the way we think about violence? Is there is there a different manifestation of evil in our culture that we're having to address? Is it a different way that we are raising kids or operating as families? But to me, there are such huge enormous cultural questions that we have to ask when it comes to the fact that somebody out there thinks the resolution, or at least the next step in my uh, evolution as a person, my growth as a person, is to take a weapon into a vulnerable place with vulnerable kids and kill people. Yeah. And I don't know if your kids are in school now at a public school or private school, but I'll tell you that the schools my kids go to now, now there are... I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility to see a metal detector at every high school, yeah. a camera and a locked door on every building, which was not the case when I was growing up. Yeah. You could walk in and out of high schools. You, there was a, a hundred entrances. Now when they design schools, you design them around safety. Why? Because this issue is so prevalent. But I think the cultural questions are super in- interesting. But one, one of the aspects of it, Adam, and I'd love for you as a philosopher to tell me about this. Don't you think our culture has a fascination with evil and violence? And can't you see that in other realms, even beyond the actual violence of kids? Isn't there a fascination with evil when it comes to movies? And I know people always want to try to hang things like school shootings on things like video games and on violent content in media. But I think if, if anything, it's maybe not the root of it, but I think it does show a symptom of the fact that our culture is fascinated by evil and violence. I think about the movie It, that's uh, the second part's coming out right now, and it's people love this idea of horror and and slasher movies, and people, the most popular video games are the most violent video games. Sure. Why do human beings have a fascination with evil and violence and hurting other people? Man, there's so many answers to that question. I think the first is that it's all, it's in all of our hearts. In other words, I think if you look theologically speaking, we are all products of the fall. Not a single one of us escape 
the fact that we are born into sin, meaning none of us are born perfect human beings. Um, all of us are born with a capacity for evil. And so I think there is something about watching horror movies, uh, playing violent video games. They reflect something in us. In other words, uh, what comes out of us, it is, and somehow it's a mirror. It actually shows who we are. Hmm. And so I, I, you know, that's that question of what's, you know, it, it's the question of what's feeding what. But what I would say is it's probably cyclical that what's coming out of our hearts is violence, uh, and the in the sort of mysterious thing it does inside of our souls, and then we feed it and we feed it and we feed it, and it grows and grows and grows. At the same time, though, what I would say is. Um, the fa- the fascination with violence is not an American problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at other cultures across the world, that's true as well. Now, I don't I'm I don't know uh, every culture or something like that, so I couldn't say. But you know, kids in Britain are playing as many violent video games as as we are. That's certainly true of kids in Japan, right? Uh, the kids in Japan, I I know a little bit about Japan. Yeah, kids in Japan uh, and how they grow up, they're exposed to all kinds of violence in right. their you know in their comic books they read and different things like that. So to say that like it's only us, it's just America. We're the only one that commoditizes and consumes violent media. It's not true. But let me jump into that, because I just had a talk with a friend of mine who lives in Japan, and he said there was a a man who'd stole a gun from a police officer. Mm -hmm. And in Japan, guns are... uh, It's not illegal to own a gun, but if you own a gun, you have to let the government know where it's kept, and the bullets have to be kept in a separate place. And if you transport the gun from one place to another, you have to let them know, and you'll have a police escort with you to move the gun. And there's tons of training around it that you have to do, and all kinds of stuff. And so in Japan, when a man had stolen a gun, so basically there's one gun unaccounted for, they shut down all the schools in the city. And they said, until we identify and find this gun, school will not be in session. Yep. And then when they found the gun, school could go back. They found this guy, they approached him, they found him in a park. I think he had some mental illness, yeah. found this gun. It was just fascinating to hear what it's like in another culture yeah. or our friends from Australia who live in a country where guns are just, there just are not guns allowed. Yeah. And in America, the, the discussion around gun rights always gets involved in uh, school shootings, but I think it's mostly because of this. I think our culture wants to always ask the question, who is to blame? That's right. And this is the cultural question we walk through over and over again. Whose fault is this? Who can do something about it? How can we prevent it from happening again? In a lot of ways, those are good questions. How can we prevent it from happening again? We could prevent it if we know who to blame, but there's also a human spirit that loves to ask whose fault is this when something happens, either to us or by us. We love to blame shift if it's something we've done and say, well, if I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it if this guy hadn't have done that. But I think the question of who to blame is, again, a a difficult cultural question. And this is one of several I've already brought up about this topic that I don't know. We can't in this podcast just say, well, here's here's why this happens. Outside of saying this is a broken world and it's a sinful world, and I'd love to see it go away. I don't want a single more child to die, let alone uh, anybody to die singularly or in mass shootings, whatever the case may be. I'd like this all to be history and not to be our future. And whether it has to do with a fascination with evil and violence, or whether it's because of a pervasive mental illness or gun laws, I do think these are cultural conversations worth having that Christians cannot remove themselves from. But when it comes to how Christians interact with what's happening, I want us to be the primary caregivers for those who have endured something difficult. The church should be a place of hope, not hopelessness, in the midst of violence. 
And Christians should be those who enter into the public dialogue and say, if there is any contributing factor, whether it's a amoral thing like um, like technology, like weapons, like vi- like uh, like video games, and we're finding a way to twist it that kind of uh, feeds and exacerbates um, uh, feelings that are already there, then let's address those. Let's address those as a church and a culture. One of the ways, and Adam, this will kind of transition us into the next topic, one of the ways this has been addressed recently, school shootings, which is a fairly controversial topic to talk about when it talks about who's to blame, is there's a comedian, he's been around for a long time, in fact, he's just a few years older than me, he used to have a TV show, but he just came out with a brand new Netflix special, Dave Chappelle. And in that Netflix special, he makes jokes about school shootings. Yeah. Yeah, he makes jokes about school shootings. He also makes jokes about molestation. He makes jokes about abortion. He has jokes about transgenderism. He has jokes about just about every uh, controversial topic you can think of. And Adam, you and I have both watched this special. Yeah. And while I'm not recommending it for Christian audiences, it is full of cussing. And like I said, he's joking about things that I think are extremely serious and sensitive. It is fascinating to see somebody have some uh, cultural commentary on some of the most controversial, don't touch that topics, don't you think? Mm-hmm. What what does the th- when you think about that special? What's the one that jumps out to you that you think like, man, I can't believe he went there because that's kind of all the response articles are like, how dare he? Yeah, talk about whatever. But I think all of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in all honesty, you know, he starts out. Um, he's he, the content. The content is actually not the point of what he's doing, which is. Which is why, if you ask me, I personally think it was it was deliberate. Yeah. We can debate about whether it was appropriate, but it was deliberate and maybe brilliant. And let me say why. Let me say why I'm saying that. Because he does. He talks about things that he shouldn't. In the very opening, he says, I can do two impressions and the first one's done. But the second one, he says, he does this impression and he says, here's this impression. If you've ever said anything in your whole life that I disagree with, I'm going to ruin your life and you're going to be canceled, basically. And he says, yeah. guess who that is? Guess who that is? And all the audience is like laughing a little bit. And he says, it's you. Mm-hmm. It's you people. And they all laugh. And then he goes in and he says all the things that everybody's afraid to say. In mm. other wa- in other words, I think it's in some sense uh, a person who is fatigued by and tired of the cancel culture, tired of the PC culture, saying, I'm going to take control back from the audience in a sense. And I'm going to say all the things that everybody's so afraid to say. And in doing it, uh, you're going to be confronted with your own, I don't know, your own sort of sensibilities and your own senses of what's right and wrong and what I'm able to laugh at and not laugh at and what, man, am I going to self-censor myself or am I going to play into this? And it it honestly was just the most one of the most uncomfortable things yeah. I've ever had to sit through. And it was uncomfortable because it was exactly what you said. It was It was going... He is these. He is delivering it in a funny way, and yet the content is not funny. Well, that's what's kind of interesting too, and what makes it uncomfortable is you can even hear, if not see, in the audience during this that they don't know whether they should be laughing at mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. and they probably did not expect to go to a comedy show and have to struggle through. Do I boo right now? Yeah. Or do I be offended right now? Yeah. Because some of the stuff he said about pedophilia as a joke, yeah. and some of the stuff he says about uh, molestation in general as a joke, it's like, that is just not 
funny. And even he says at one point, uh, 50% of you, according to statistics, 50% of you have been molested. And there's kind of like a hush in the crowd. Yeah. Because you can think like, yeah, that's probably true. A ton of these people have yeah. experienced what you are telling jokes about. And I wonder, well, a couple things. I'm grateful to have a culture where there's enough freedom of speech to be able to say, a guy can talk about things that we would say are taboo and we can get them out there in the open. Because I don't want to be in a culture that says, actual taboo, do not ever discuss this. Let's shut that down. Yeah. I do wonder, uh, and it's kind of fascinating for Christians to think about this in a world where I hear outcry all the time of like, I'm not allowed to communicate what I believe and think because I am a Christian. Yeah. And so uh, even this week, there was an article about uh, some kids from Wheaton College who wanted to evangelize at uh, the Bean, Millennial Millennium Park in Chicago. And they were told there's no more evangelism in the park. And there's this um, kind of outcry of uh, you're impairing their religious freedom, and uh, we could talk through all that, but I, I hear that kind of uh, concept a lot. Uh, Christians mm-hmm. aren't allowed to be Christians in public, that Dave Chappelle is demonstrating, uh, man, this is what it's like to have very controversially opinions, but he presents them in a comedy special in a way that almost insulates him from the blowback of saying, That's listen, right. I'm just telling jokes. Yep. It's not like this is a democratic debate and you're going to have to vote for me. He's just telling... Uh, what he would call jokes, but in many ways are super cringeworthy, yeah. awkward moments over and over and over again about abortion and about yeah. transgenderism. And But like you said, I, there's an appreciation in me of saying like, okay, there's something brilliant about saying you guys think, you mentioned the PC world, it's so politically correct, I can't talk about this. Well, we, we live in a world now, I mean, to, to just to sort of analyze culture for a minute, we are in a culture of high offense. Yes. That's what we're in. Oh, yeah. We're rage. in a rage and high offense culture. No one listens to each other. Everything's sound bites. Everything's just um, jabs, and, and, and people are so offended uh, and unwilling to ask clarifying questions to find out what people really think, and it's just feeding itself. Or and to consider that they might be wrong or about something because be it, wrong. Yeah, because they're not allowed to think about it. And so, in other words, there is a... There is a in the background, there is this, in a high offense culture, what is happening now is what people are saying, what they're implying is that the exchange of ideas has failed. Mm. A society where we get together and we talk about things and nothing's really off the table because we need to live, in order to make this work, we need to be able to debate and discuss and to have conversations about things that we disagree about. That's the only way we're going to be able to go forward. What people are saying is, implied in the high offense culture, is actually that's failed. Mm. And so from the right, what that looks like is, can you believe all these heathens? I can't believe they'll say these things. It's taboo. We can't talk about it. From the left, you have, it's the new puritanism. You have you have this puritanical thing of saying, you can't talk like, it's the same. It's mirrored the exact same. You can't talk about those things. Those things are off limits. So we don't hold up the value anymore of, of actually not just a free speech, but not free speech for f- free speech's sake. It's now actually saying um, this, the thing that free speech was supposed to guard, which was the idea of a, of, a, of a marketplace of ideas coming together and us figuring out how to live with each other, saying we don't want that, actually. Yeah. What we want is for you to agree with our side, and what we want, and this is from both sides I'm of the political spectrum, I'm not just saying one, we want you to agree with our side, and if you don't, you're evil. That's, yeah. that's sort of the new world we yeah, live in. Disagreement is and disrespect. I, that's right. Yeah. And so I think what sh- what I would say, a lot of the response I've heard to Chappelle is, is actually just 
reinforcing that narrative. They're like, he's just a troll. He's j- it's just empty, and all he's doing is trying to make you mad and offend you. And it's like, actually, I don't think that was the point. What he was doing was trying to point out that that's what our culture is now. Hmm. It was less a comedy special to me and more a cultural critique. Well, I think was something fascinating culturally is uh, about our celebrity culture. If if it wasn't Dave Chappelle saying these things, sure. if it was somebody else, yeah, I mean he, he Dave Chappelle almost kind of can get away with it, yeah. right? In our culture, we can kind of say he's a celebrity and he's a minority and he's funny, and therefore he can say things that maybe somebody else couldn't. If this was Taylor Swift saying these things, even in a yeah. celebrity culture, sure. if this was uh, a politician, oh my goodness, they just lost their career, their job. But he can, in a way, have a conversation that the rest of us can't because he can do it as maybe it's satire, yeah. maybe it's comedy, maybe it's. But isn't comedy poking its finger at what our culture uh, operates under and it loves to ignore? Yeah, and it's kind of poking at that and saying, "Look at who we are. Look at who we are, guys." There is something Trumpian about what he did. I mean, you said, uh, "Could a politician get away with this?" And I'm like, "Well." We have Maybe. one in the White House. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because <laughs> that's a good transition to what else I want to talk about. I have, and I'm suffering from what I can only describe as Trump fatigue. Sure. I love the news. I love keeping up with what's going, what's going on. I'll tell you, I am much more a local news guy than I was before, mm-hmm. because it's not necessarily Trump, but politics has just drained my will to live. Yeah. It is, and it's not just this cultural moment. It might be my age as part of it. Yeah. But I have such fatigue from the next day being, I mean, you could replace, it's almost like you play Mad Libs with like Trump tweeted and then fill in the blank He's and terrible. following people are outraged. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that is our everyday reality. It could be a foreign country. It could be a foreign leader. Yep. It could be a person in his own staff. It could be a Democrat. It could be whatever, but that is the everyday Headline, and I get why knowing what's happening in the world is important. I hate that I don't want to read it. I don't want to know about it. I'm fatigued by it. I don't think I, I'm. What I would do is let you off the hook in some way by saying what you're reading is not news. What you're reading is buying into the play of Trump in the in what some people would call his brilliance, which is we never actually hear about what he really wants to do. What he does is he just trolls, and then people get outraged. And so what's reported on is nothing. It's I made fun of somebody. I said this about somebody. I offended this party. Outrage. Isn't it terrible? That's not news. Yeah. That's not news. And But that's where, where he wants to keep the focus, right? Because if you actually look at policy, if you actually look at things like deficit increasing, right? Uh, we just went over a trillion dollars. Like, it's not harder for a conservative to answer those questions, right? About like, hey, this guy actually is spending tons and tons of money. He is not acting very conservative on that front. It's harder for conservatives to sort of, well, actually, yeah, that doesn't really align. Or, mm-hmm. you know, for Democrats to sort of attack that because they themselves want to spend all the money. <laughs> so, well, let's talk about that because yeah. I'm not just fatigued by Trump. I'm fatigued by the system and Democratic. Yeah. Right now, we have these Democratic debates. I literally cannot keep track of them, yeah. nor what people are saying. Yeah, and to me they feel, oh man, less appealing than anything else happening on television that night. That's right. Is to turn on a democratic debate and think about, uh, or the, the primaries is what we're in right now. Cause the election is next November. Yeah. Uh, so they're trying to kind of battle each other at this point, sure. like a little piranha tank and then who comes out on top. Yep. But there is a part of me that's like, man, I, I just know what to expect. And I feel like anytime I would watch something like that, I know what's going to come from it. Yep. It's this rage culture of like, oh yeah, well, oh yeah, well, and 
And I feel like there's questions to be asked, but no one's actually given the answers. They want to, they want a chance to say something on television. Score a point. Yeah, to score a point. And people are smarter than I think the, the, that, I don't know that the media gives them credit for. It's like everybody knows that this is, everybody knows that this is all just a show, right? The, the, especially the debates. There's an article that just came out on the Atlantic and it's titled, uh, it literally came out the day we're recording this. Uh, and it's entitled, The Democratic Debates Aren't Pleasing Anyone. And the whole thing is about how the candidates don't like it. Yep. People don't like it. People are watching it, but they don't like it. Uh, and that the aides don't like it. DC yeah. doesn't like it. Basically, everyone's saying, these debates are pointless. Yeah. And finally, we all agree. Finally, we all agree. Everybody <laughs> yeah. agrees that the debates are pointless. And whether you're, dim- and this is not, this isn't a republic. This isn't a conservative. Yeah, it's not a political voice. statement. This, is, yeah. this is just. It's actually probably somebody who's uh, not conservative writing it, and their their point is really just that what's happened to our culture um, is that we have become an outrage culture. We've become a soundbite culture. If you think of Twitter, everything's just short statements. Uh, that are typically meaningless and really all that all it is is how to uh, evoke an emotion from you because it's easier to get emotionally charged than it is to think through things. That's a good point. And um, and and so basically, what's happening is uh, these politicians are going on stage. They're not actually talking about anything. They're just scoring points against each other. I, I you know, any news I've read about it has been who did the best, and it's been like so and so because there's so many people on stage. It's, it's like so and so got the most time. Well, what did they do with that time? They attacked Biden or they attacked, yeah. et cetera. And it's just sort of like, uh, who cares? I mean, and I think everybody's sort of shrugging and saying, who cares? But this is what's sad to me. I want, I want to be able to pastor people and advise a, the Christians in this culture mm-hmm. to say, we need to be engaged. Mm-hmm. We need to be engaged in what's happening in the world. We need to not only know what's happening, but be influencer for the sure. sake of the gospel. Yeah. And I do think it's a gospel issue to be involved in our government. We have uh, the ability to do that in our country, which is fantastic. So it breaks my heart to be in a system that I do not, I just don't want to even know what's happening on either so, side. Yeah, it's so on either frustrating yeah. on either side. That's what yeah. I mean. Yeah. It's not like I have. I, I, can, I think the American uh, hero worship part of me wants, like, I want somebody that thinks the way I think sure. to come in and do things the way I would do them. Sure. And then it seems like it'd be easier to pastor people to say, just vote and follow this person. That's right. And so it drives me nuts to not have that. And that's kind of the current reality we're in, where it's, I know we're not in a theocracy, yep. and we're not in a, a, a Christian culture by any stretch of the imagination when it comes to the way news outlets operate or politicians operate, and it is very frustrating to me to uh, to mourn, to instead of mourning that and grieving that, I just kind of feel like I want to resign myself to saying, fine, then I'm, I'm just going to stop paying attention. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I think in some sense it might actually be helpful to not pay attention to certain sources. I, 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 the only way I know to help pastor somebody through things like this is to help them think critically, h- help them sort of differentiate in some sense from the quick emotional reasoning, Good. and instead to be like, okay, what's what is really going on? Let's not focus on the content of what they keep arguing about. Let's go underneath it for something a little bit deeper. What's really happening here? And then and then that might lead to some real policy considerations. Like there's actually a really good way to have a gun debate in regards to um, uh, school shootings, right? Yeah. 
or not just a gun debate, but mental health and these kind of things, and actually kind of think about the issues and talk about it in a way that that's helpful, right? Yeah. There's a way to do it that's really unhelpful. And what seems to be in the media is the really unhelpful way. So what's my point in that is just to, just to say, I think the press would be, hey, try to find those sources that aren't going to be sound bites. And that's that's a really hard thing. Yeah. And I think that's the fascinating point here for the sake of the the podcast purpose. Like there are going to be times we're going to tell people this is how to discern what the Christian should think. And in this, I feel like I just have to tell people, be discerning. Yeah. yeah, Be discerning. I I don't know exactly what's going to come from that. Sure. But please be discerning. Understand that some people are just trying to get a job or keep a job. Other people are just trying to win or compete. Other people have uh, ideologies that may not align with you. But as a Christian in America, be discerning and Mm -hmm. try to be discerning. And speaking of which, there there are tons of... uh, versions of even what we believe that are promoted out there that I would say, man, be, be discerning in where you go to church or who you follow. And in interesting news, this these last couple of weeks, there's a the very famous, perhaps the most famous, like um, televangelist type, big world healer, prosperity gospel preacher, is this man named Benny Hinn with a famous white hairdo who's been doing these mass healings and huge, whatever you would call them, kind of revivalistic big stadiums full of people, and has asked people that, or told people that if you send money in, I will bless you. Yeah. Which is a version of a prosperity gospel of, hey, God God will give you more if you give me some. <laughs> and so what's interesting about Benny Hinn is these last couple of weeks, it seems like there's some shift. And I don't, I mean, I'm taking this with a grain of salt, and I'm yeah. really skeptical in some yeah. ways, because this guy's been out there for years. But it seems like some of the things he's starting to say about the gospel not being for sale might be a sign that he's pulling back the curtain a little bit and saying, I am not who I was, or I've never really believed that if you sent me money, you would get some back. Have you read any of this on Benny Hinn? I saw his statement he did where he basically came on TV and he still sort of, he wasn't dressed quite as you know, um, I don't know. Luxuriously? Yeah, yeah. As um, um, as he usually is. He still was. <laughs> but he he basically didn't have all the jewelry he would normally have on. And and he, he basically disavowed what he had taught before. I don't know what that means. I think what's interesting, though, let me just say this. I think there is such thing as a Christian culture. Uh, and 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 that's true from the inside, meaning how we would think. There's probably Christian cultures. That's yeah. probably more true. I think the way that the world actually, let me say it differently, the wider American view of Christian culture is probably prosperity gospel, word of faith. Um, What's word of faith? Word of faith is part of what the movement he is, which is basically this same idea like a name it and claim it. Uh, a name it. it and claim it ideology. It's the same idea. Uh, if you have enough faith, if you have enough faith, you will you will be able to be healed. If you it puts the onus of the the it puts the onus on the believer and the strength of their faith to accomplish certain things rather than God's accomplished work on the cross. Right. Yeah. So, anyways, I guess what I would say as I'm talking about that though, I th- 
I'm thinking about a show that just came out. It's called Righteous Gemstones. I've never seen it. I'm not advocating that people see it. But basically, this is what it is, is making fun of Christianity, mainly prosperity gospel. And I think about things like Hillsong and some of these, this kind of celebrity pastor culture. I'm thinking about all these pastors who maybe aren't prosperity gospel preachers, but they dress in Gucci and whatever, all these crazy designer brands that are, you know, $2,000 for a shirt. $2,000 for their sneakers, $1,000 for their pants, $500 for their belt, and they're going on stage and preaching this Jesus who renounced worldly possessions. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, uh, uh, and it just, there's a disconnect there. And I think this is how the world is actually sort of seeing culture. And I've actually seen some people um, write articles recently on why Christianity sort of lost its soul, and it's because of these things. And so, I, that is a very long segue to say, I hope Benny Hinn has disavowed yeah. uh, this false gospel of prosperity, this false gospel of name it and claim it, this false gospel of a... of a um, uh, 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 Like, if you uh, contribute to me, God mm-hmm. will contribute to you kind of idea, right? Yeah, and I think and I, what I would call, in as strong as language as I can, sort of a satanic view of the spirit, uh, meaning... Yeah. If you, if you can will it, if you can dream it up, if you can just have enough, mm-hmm. you will not. You will be healthy, wealthy, and and have fun. Basically, I think one of the things you brought up here that it probably is a full episode for us at some point. But we all have a line, and we don't really know where it is necessarily in our head of how wealthy or luxurious is a pastor or a minister allowed to be before it's not okay? Yeah. And if for some people, they believe that uh, people who are professionals working in uh, where they are paid to be teachers of the gospel, they should be paid just enough to live. Yeah. Other people believe that you should be paid well enough to thrive, like you're... If your if your church is thriving financially, then you should be making about the same as they are. Yeah. Some people believe that uh, there are cultures in our country that believe your pastor should be the highest paid person at the church. That this should be yeah. the person that represents all the Lord is doing in and through. And then there's this te- televangelist culture that would have no problem with you know Rolex watches and and fancy sports cars and say like yeah. this is the blessing of the Lord upon somebody. Sure. And we all have that line though. No matter who you are, yeah. what you believe is like at some point. Uh, if you looked at my car as a pastor, there'd be a line at which I could cross you and go, well, that doesn't seem appropriate for a pastor. Yeah. And everybody has that line. We don't know where it is, but Christian culture internally, we have that line Sure. where it's, well, let me see that pastor's house and you judge for yourself whether or not you think that's okay. Yeah. And let me see how that pastor dresses. Is, does he dress in a way that makes me uncomfortable? Yeah. And we wouldn't have that for people in other positions, but I think there's something in Christianity that says it, it makes me feel a certain way about my faith and my religion to see somebody who gets paid to advocate for that religion for a living and how much they make, or at least how it's expressed sure. in what we would call luxuries, things you don't need, the yep. things you have. Yeah. And I think that same might be true for, for actual corporate churches. Like you look at a building or what they spend their money on in yep. their budget yep. and say, we all have that feeling in us. And in some points, I do believe the Holy Spirit's guidance in it to say, this is not the way yep. a church or an individual should spend what they have. Yeah. My hope for Benny Hinn is my hope for any other individuals that they might see the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, repent of those sins, and maybe like Zacchaeus, say, if there's anything that I've stolen, yeah. let me give it back. Yeah. And not just say, uh, conveniently, I'm not going to do that anymore, but also this repentance retroactively affects who I am, who I was, and who I want to be from here on out. It's really good. And that's what I'd like to see from him and from anybody in our culture. Yeah. 
Well, if you liked what you heard on Culture Matters today, we hope you'll rate and review us on iTunes. It's certainly fun for us to get to minister and bless you as we talk through culture. Uh, Thanks for listening to episode 101, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.